Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by author Aaron Stark, and we are going to discuss his book, Disrupting Time, which takes a look at the industrial espionage battle between Swiss watch manufacturers and the Waltham Watch Company in the 1870s. It's a very interesting book, and it's a bit of a, I suppose it's a bit of a left field for us a little bit, because it's all about watches, but, um, you know, as most people know, Swiss watch brands such as Rolex, Omega, Bretling are all, all very much attached to the military espionage. You know, you have James Bond with his Omega or his Rolex back in the day. Um, and, you know, many people I follow online who are connected to the world of espionage or special forces, they all have Swiss branded watches. But um, what I didn't know and only have found out since reading this book is how actually American watches back in the 1870s were actually better quality than Swiss watches because Swiss watches had this reputation of being fantastic watches. So this book was a really interesting sort of eye-opener to the kind of mythology behind Swiss watches and it's a really good little espionage tale too. So this book is a bit different but it's actually well worth a listen to this interview especially if you're a watch fan. If you enjoy this podcast please consider supporting us directly by becoming a Patreon subscriber. If you go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies you'll get access to our special show, Extra Shot, which follows our episodes of Espresso Martini. On top of that, depending on which level you select, you'll get a free coffee cup or set of coasters that will be sent to you in the post. If you can't financially support us, that's absolutely fine. What I would ask is that you leave a review on your podcast app. Every review boosts our algorithm, and that helps people discover the show. So reviews are really important, so please do leave a review on your podcast app. Without further ado, let's get going. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening and take care. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, happy to be here. Well, thank you for joining me today. Um, for the benefit of listeners, please can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what drew your interest into the battle between Swiss watch manufacturers and the Waltham Watch Company and the sort of industrial espionage around that? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of a, a good starting point. Um, I began researching this book while I was a student uh, in graduate school. I was attending Harvard Business School. Uh, getting my MBA with a focus on finance and strategy. Um, and I, at the time I had inherited this pocket watch from my great grandfather, which happened to be a Waltham, a 1903 Waltham watch and began trying to learn everything I could about Waltham, uh, having being in Boston there, Waltham's actually just up the road. Uh, and I, I came across this report that this gentleman, Jacques uh, David, who we will talk about, um, he wrote and his report had been translated into English 
Uh, and you can find uh, a link to that report on my website, aaronstarkbooks.com. And uh, many of the things I'll talk about today, both pictures and other some of the other sources I link to on there. Um, and be, uh, began reading his report, and it struck me as you know a fascinating uh, description of industrial era production, but you know primarily with regards to the watch industry. Uh, but it also began to tell a narrative that ran contrary to my general understanding of of watches. You know, we grow up now with the idea that Swiss watches are the best watches in the world, and it just countered my narrative, and it caused me to want to look into it more. So I spent uh, much of the rest of my time in grad school uh, researching it. And then uh, after grad school, I continued on where I uh, actually taught economics for five years, economics and finance uh, at West Point, uh, the United States' uh, military academy. Um, and I recently left academia and now work in business, uh, but have really enjoyed looking into this era of history and this uh, story of strategy and competition and espionage. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, very, very interesting book, your book. I mean, it really um, made me, because like with that assumption you mentioned just a few moments ago about uh, Swiss watches being the best and stuff, it sort of really uh, opened my eyes a little bit to the whole whole uh, i suppose legend i suppose <laughs> i put it that way because i wouldn't say myth but but uh yeah it was very interesting and there was one one really interesting quote that will kind of lead us into my next question is the clock not the steam engine is the key machine of the modern industrial age and i found that really a very interesting point so i suppose can you talk to us a bit about the role of the watch industry in 19th century society yeah and that that quote you mentioned is actually from a um a historian wrote that in, I think it was the 1930s. And he's, you know, if you think about the context there, the steam engine, you know, had just revolutionized society. So the fact that a historian is giving the credit to the clock and, you know, we could extend that to the watch um, and timekeeping as modernizing the industrial age is quite remarkable. And I think a lot of it has to do with the context. So if we rewind back to about 1850, there are clocks in society and clocks are relatively ubiquitous, whether they be the, the local town clock or people had now that they could start buying clocks affordably for their homes. Um, but they weren't necessarily highly accurate. Uh, the clocks were, were generally accurate, but watches themselves were rare and they were, you know, rarely accurate. There were a few, you know, pristine watches that were accurate, but for the most part, people weren't able to afford watches. And if they could, they they surely weren't accurate. And so this idea of timekeeping and, and precision timekeeping was almost unheard of and kind of irrelevant, to be honest. Uh, you'd be asked to meet somebody somewhere uh, at a certain time and you'd just, you know, show up about that time and you'd give grace if it wasn't right on time. Uh, and then we have this, this change in society and it really uh, begins to occur around the 1860s uh, as Waltham begins mass producing uh, luxury watch. Well, not really luxury, but uh, watches that could keep time very accurately. Uh, and they begin uh, spreading throughout society and other competitors rise. And we have this rise of the machine made watch that is mass produced. And it is now possible for everyone to own an affordable watch. And by the 1880s, that the concept of timekeeping has really transformed. We now have people are expected to be someplace on time. And if, you know, if, if a show says it's gonna start at 7 p.m., you're expected to be there by 7 p.m. If work is at 7 a.m., you're expected to be there at 7 a.m. 
And so this whole concept of timekeeping, we, we, this period that we'll be focusing on today is really amidst this revolution in timekeeping. And when you think about how important it is, um, you know, now we kind of view watches as, you know, they're just a piece of jewelry. It's part of a luxury industry. Um, but at that time, it was, it was much more than that. It was really the technology sector of its era, and it was leading um, people's lives and, and transforming people's lives. And so we find that the per capita ownership of watches in, say, 1870 was about one in 20 adults uh, in America. And by the time we get to 1890, that is quadrupled to about one in five American adults own a watch, uh, even though the population throughout this period has grown substantially. So this whole period of time is changing the way people view time. And of course, now you and I uh, block our days in 30 minute periods. And if you, uh, you know, your meetings are probably your calendar is uh, meetings are dictated by 30 or 60 minutes. And of course, you and I uh, figured out an exact time to meet here and we both showed up within a minute. Um, so it's quite remarkable how much it's transformed society. Yeah, I mean, it's weird. I sort of, I suppose I just take it as a given, but it is interesting to think of a time when timekeeping wasn't such a, a, a big thing. I find that fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And one other point that sort of cropped up as well that I found very interesting was how this time consciousness really kind of grew during the American Civil War as the soldiers sort of became dependent and addicted to time. Yeah, so I mentioned the 1860s kind of begins this revolution and Waltham, uh, they really, Waltham was founded in 1850, but it, it quickly went bankrupt by 1856. And this mm. businessman named Royal Robbins, who really knew nothing about watch production. I mean, nobody knew anything about watch production yeah. except for, you know, skilled watchmakers. And so Royal Robbins is this young 33-year-old businessman. He buys Waltham out of bankruptcy and begins to implement this idea of mass-produced watches. He hires a gentleman named Ambrose Webster from the firearms industry. He worked at Springfield Armory, which is just down the road from Waltham in Massachusetts. And um, this gentleman, Ambrose Webster, begins uh, inventing the machines that Robbins will need to make a mass-produced watch industry. And so leading into the Civil War here at 1860, 1861, Robbins, uh, his company, Waltham, has now invented um, the idea of mass-produced watches, and they begin to make them cheaper. They realize that the, the, the key to mass production is you need to sell a lot and lot of watches, and he knows that's not going to happen with really expensive watches. So he begins focusing the company's strategy on cheap and reliable watches. And going into the Civil War, they invent this model called the Ellery. And it quickly earns the name, the soldier's watch. And we have good evidence that everywhere from the, the private in the army, um, all the way through officers in the army would own Waltham watches. And in fact, the American president, Abraham Lincoln, he owned a Waltham watch. So we know that there's everybody from privates in the army up through the president of the United States are all owning these Waltham watches. And it really begins to change the way people view time. And if you think about it, a soldier in the field, they know that there's going to be an attack and you know it might be the next day and might start at 4 a.m. The only way to really know that when you're in the field, you're not around clocks, is you have to own a watch. And so these soldiers start buying watches. Uh, and is what's interesting is there was one uh, historian who was reviewing my book and 
I doubt this idea that soldiers would spend two months' wages on a watch. And it's absolutely true. We do find that soldiers would be willing to spend it. And in fact, they did it. And many soldiers did it. And there's, there's many documented examples of this because they wanted to know the time. Well, the military commanders start to take advantage of the fact that watches are everywhere. And there's this Battle of Vicksburg in 1863 when General Grant orders that all of his armies synchronize their watches to the same time so that they can you know, join the attack at the exact same time. And that's kind of the first historical example I came across of good synchronization across armies for exact times, um, all the way down to the lowest level of soldiers. Yeah, the phrase synchronized watches is just such a, a important phrase, isn't it, in military? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And, and so now we, um, you know, these soldiers leave service after the war is over in 1865, uh, but they take this concept with them of, hey, we can all actually be someplace at the same time. And you have a watch, I have a watch, let's all meet somewhere uh, at the exact same time. And so that the concept of, of being somewhere at the same time begins to trickle throughout society uh, following the American Civil War. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that. You, you've sort of touched upon us already, but the, the Waltham Watch Company, can you just talk to us a little bit more about it and why it kind of became of concern to Swiss watch manufacturers? And then maybe could you also talk to us a little bit about the Swiss manufacturing process and how it was different from Waltham's method? Yeah, so Waltham, as I mentioned, they begin to invent this idea of mass production. And so we're, when we're talking early on, we're talking a couple hundred watches a month. By uh, 1900, that would really scale to about a million watches a year uh, that Waltham is able to produce. But um, as Waltham's uh, production efficiency increases, they quickly surpass the Swiss ability to produce watches. And I'll talk about Swiss production here in a minute. But the, their ability to do this quickly outstrips their ability to sell. So Waltham not only has to create, how do you actually mass produce? They actually have to create, how do you mass distribute? So uh, Royal Robbins owned a distribution business before he owned Waltham. And so he's very familiar with dis the distribution industry. And right around this time, railroads were becoming more prominent. And uh, Robbins had a very good network for getting his watches to uh, distant cities. Uh, there's good examples as early as 18, so 1860s, Robbins is actually able to get his watches over uh, internationally. Um, and so Robbins has the good distribution networks. He's inventing how do you dis distribute mass-produced watches. And then he also has to figure out how do you market mass-produced watches and make people want to sell them. So Robbins kind of invents modern watch marketing as we know it at the time. Um, but he run and he creates this factory. Another cool innovation of Robbins is he has to figure out how to manage a factory that has almost a thousand employees. We kind of take that for granted now that everybody knew how to do this. But if you rewind back to uh, this time, the idea of a, a large factory is still relatively nascent and the railroads are just kind of starting to figure out how do you, um, how do you control that many workers and, and coordinate them to actually get a task done. And Robbins is kind of at the cutting edge of this. In fact, he's on the board of the Union Pacific Railroad uh, alongside Andrew Carnegie and George Pullman. So he's kind of considered a business leader of his time. And he's inventing this whole concept of, of managing a large business right alongside his peers. And so he's able to do all these things. But another really cool thing about Waltham is when you read about how they treated employees, how they ran the factory. It really mm -hmm. is reminiscent of what we kind of associate with like modern 
companies that take really good care of their employees or maybe even leading companies like those those modern tech companies that we say man they take such good care of their employees they're so progressive Waltham actually does this way back in the 1870s uh, and 1860s um, and I've had many people comment on you know when I read this account of the Waltham factory it, it makes me think of companies now and I, it just totally counters our perceptions of the industrial revolution yeah definitely it sounded like an amazing place to work and in fact um i mean we'll talk about this a bit later but i was then a bit surprised that obviously some employees would uh, end up sort of should we say talking to the competition and potentially placing the company in danger i found that quite interesting yeah absolutely so i'd mentioned um also i would kind of bring into context of the swiss industry at the time yeah yeah and so the swiss prior to 1876 were really like a cottage manufacturing industry where you would have a, a watchmaker and they would need parts and they would distribute kind of the tasks to different farmers. And some of them were full-time, you know, we say part-time farmers, part-time watchmakers. Some of them by this time had kind of converted over to just being full-time parts makers, but they would literally work with their families throughout the winter and they would make batches of parts across the, the harsh winters in Switzerland. And then the watchmaker would come around in the spring and summertime and collect up those parts, begin assembling them to a watch. And so it's feasible that you could have 130 different people all making parts that would contribute to a watch. Uh, and then it would go together and as you can imagine, when you have that many handmade parts, some of them are good, some of them are bad, uh, and is all you need is one part in a watch that is not working well for the whole thing to not to not work. And so, the Swiss uh, at this time earned this reputation um, for being kind of this mass-producing but emerging economy whose whose products are very unreliable. Mm. And there's actually many good quotes from newspapers and uh, even the Swiss themselves. Uh, following the Centennial Exhibition in 1876, say, you know, we sent the worst trash to America. Like, we don't blame them for thinking our watches are terrible. And it's, again, goes completely contrary to our view of Swiss watches now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's part of the the whole grab is is realizing that the Swiss at the time were not uh, the world's leading watchmakers. They were definitely known for making watches, uh, but as far as making the best watches in the world, Waltham actually earns that award from the Centennial Exhibition uh, of making the best watches in the world, and it's awarded by a few Swiss judges. So Waltham has definitely uh, shown that they can make the best and most cheap and reliable watches in the world, but also make the best watches in the world. And that's what makes this this year of 1876 when the Swiss come uh, so impactful. Yeah, yeah. Well, can you talk to us a little bit about the Centennial Exhibition that was held in, in 1876? Because it was quite a significant sort of event, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's one of the great world's fairs and probably the Crystal Palace Exhibition in London is, is probably the first great world's fair that people are familiar with. Uh, and that was in the 1850s. And then we, we fast forward, 1876 is 100 years since America uh, declared its independence. So they're celebrating their centennial. And in when during the centennial celebration, they are really trying to show the world that they can actually compete on a world stage. And um, 
they bring all this industry uh, to bear. And so, for example, the telephone debuts at the Centennial, the typewriter, the sewing machine, all these things, uh, including the combustion engine that will change how we view society going into the future, debut at the Centennial. So it's truly a time of technological innovation uh, and truly a time of America showing, hey, these are all the things that we have brought uh, to the world. And um, Europeans leave the centennial being completely amazed at what America is able to produce. Uh, just to give you a scale of how many people come, uh, it, 10 million people attend the centennial at a time that there's about 40 million Americans. So roughly, you know, one quarter of the American population could have attended. Now, you know, people came from all over the yeah. world. So uh, obviously not everybody in America attends, but just there's nothing really in our modern um, sense where we give it that scale. Um, probably the closest we might see now is something like the Olympic Games, where you have people coming from all over the world, uh, and it's something that yeah. everybody's paying attention to. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a huge thing. That's yeah, a huge thing. And Waltham were basically showing their machines at this exhibition, weren't they? Yeah, so all these exhibitors, you know, their biggest building in the world at the time is actually at the Centennial Exhibition, and they have multiple mm -hmm. buildings that are huge. And so while most exhibitors just show, you know, the, the, the Swiss approach to this is, hey, let's just show a few watches, we'll put them in a display case. And that's kind of how most people yeah. approach the Centennial. It's an opportunity to show your wares, um, but Royal Robbins is truly a marketing genius and he envisions something much more. And he views it as his factory and its tools are actually the true way to draw attention and to let people know, hey, we can truly dominate the global watch market. So he sees it and we, in, in his letters, he actually writes about this as he sees it as a way to scare off future competition so he is, um, there's other American competitors trying to do the same thing with mass produced watches. And then he also knows there's the Swiss and other international competitors such as the English. He sees this as a way to show the world that Waltham dominates the watch industry and will completely overwhelm it through mass production. So he says, hey, let's put a couple machines at the Centennial Exhibition. So he selects 16 specific machines that he sends there and they build a mini assembly line exhibit. And if you go to my website, aaronstarkbooks.com, you can see a picture of this uh, that was captured at the Centennial. And this exhibit is truly novel because he's gonna run this mini assembly line. It doesn't produce all parts of a watch. Uh, in fact, it only produces a few pieces and parts of a whole watch, but people are amazed. And probably the machine that draws the most attention is this machine called the automatic screw making machine. Uh, and it's about the size of a large shoebox or the, the like a pair of boots, uh, you know, box that big. And it's run by steam power. And this exhibit is literally right at the epicenter of Machinery Hall, which is truly a temple to innovation of the time. And it's right next to this giant machine known as the Corliss Steam Engine, which rose over 40 feet tall and was the uh, steam engine that powered the entire hall through this um, Venus network of shafts and belts. And so the automatic screw machine is right next to this giant steam engine and it captures the imagination of correspondents uh, and people across the world. In fact, it was said that people literally would stand there from morning to night to watch this thing because it could literally produce a tiny screw every five seconds. 
Uh, and at the time, people had to produce screws by hand for watchmaking. So the Swiss come and they have these uh, people they had sent as observers to the World's Fair, one of them whose name is Theophilus Gribby. And Gribby actually in his journal notes the number of screws and he does some math calculations to figure out, he's like, this thing can produce over 10,000 screws a day. Um, and what was, uh, and he basically says, this is you know more than uh, 10 times than anybody I know could produce in a day. But what was even more fascinating was one person could run uh, over eight of these machines. And so it's like literally the productive capacity of a single person making screws has gone up from less than a thousand a day to over 80,000 in a day. And he writes back to Switzerland with alarm uh, and says, there's nothing like this. I've seen nothing like this. This is, uh, we are in extreme danger. Um, and he sends us back to uh, his watchmakers professional society in Switzerland, which is becomes this letter becomes the catalyst for everything uh, that will follow here that we'll talk about. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, can you talk to us a bit about who Jacques David was and Theophilus Gribby and why they were sent to the U.S.? So Theophilus Gribby uh, was sent uh, as to, to serve as a judge uh, at the World's Fair by the Swiss. So um, countries sent different judges. And so they were actually, um, there was another famous uh, Swiss watchmaker named Edouard Favre Pere. And he comes as well. And they join a, a crew of about a, a 10 judges. Um, some of them are American. Some of them are from around the world. And in fact, one of the cool things is they're judges for precision instruments as the category. And probably the most famous thing they are responsible for judging as part of precision instruments was the telephone. And they were actually some of the first people to experience the telephone uh, when Alexander Graham Bell introduced it at the centennial. So this kind of you know provides you a little context for what their what their their roles are at the centennial. So Gribby comes over here. He comes over as a judge, and Gribby was a skilled watchmaker. He had spent some time living in America. He had recently returned to Switzerland, uh, and he is known as a, a very skilled watchmaker. And he is helping judge and he sends back to Switzerland with alarm. Well, the Swiss watchmakers get this letter and they have a professional society known as the Intercantonal Society of Jura Industries. And you can think of it as like a, a trade association for businesses of Western Switzerland, uh, primarily watchmakers. And their goal is kind of the economic interests of Western Switzerland. And they realize that this is going, this could be very bad. Uh, they already know there's kind of a problem in the watch industry. Sales had been cratering for months uh, going into 1876. And so they know there's a problem. So they send over this other gentleman named Jacques David. And Jacques David is both a watchmaker, but primarily he's an engineer. He's a mechanical engineer and he understands and, and is very interested in the use of mechanized production and watches. And so he's kind of a, a tailor-made person for his mission, which they get specific instructions from the Society of Jura Industries to make a detailed collection of any information related to the production of watches, whether it be finances, the mechanics, how to run the business. Uh, and so they um, really spend much of their time focusing on much more than just designs. Um, they do, they do 
spend some time focusing on designs, but really their entire report will end up encompassing everything with how to run a business in the late 19th century, making it a truly fascinating uh, report to read. And at the exhibition, sketches, drawings, and photographs were prohibited. Can you talk to us about how David and Gribby kind of went about kind of getting information on sort of Waltham and what they and the information they needed? The report that Jacques David writes, um, it really doesn't come into prominence uh, until really around the year 2000. And I think it's kind of important to understand the context um, of this before we get into the kind of what's included in there, where they get their information. Yeah. So the uh, anybody who reads Jacques David's report since it's come out will read it and say, this is a fascinating document, especially from a historical perspective. But then the real question becomes, where did it come from and why was it not prominent? So just to give you an example of how this report truly remained in the shadows for over a century, um, there is a prominent historian named David Landis who writes a book in 1983. He's a Harvard historian, writes this book called Revolution in Time. Uh, and there is no mention of Jacques David or his report or anything he writes or anything we're about to discuss here in uh, Landis's book. Fast forward to post 2000, the most prominent book on the watch industry right now is uh, called The History of the Swiss Watch Industry from Jacques David to Nicholas Hayek. So here we've gone from no mention of David in the most prominent work of history in 1983 to Jacques David is now part of the title. And much of this stems from David writes this report that when he gets back to Switzerland, he dictates that it must remain secret because he knows that it could be used as propaganda against the Swiss watch industry if acquired by the Americans. And then he's also worried about his sources. In fact, he mentions in there that if this report gets out, our sources could be compromised. And the question becomes, where did the report come from and how did he get all the information? The conventional narrative prior to the publication of my book was that Jacques David was kind of viewed as a ignorant friend of the Americans and the Americans naively invited him on tours and showed him how their businesses worked. And Jacques David then takes this information back, writes a report and the Swiss use it to industrialize their watch industry. This is not true. And in fact, some of the evidence that I came across in my research clearly points to David was an industrial spy. So David writes a letter in September of 1876 back to Switzerland. And he actually talks, he says all kind of the quiet parts out loud about how he's gonna collect information that his report doesn't capture. So first of all, he, he actually says that we sped through quickly and incognito uh, and we saw the poor arrangements we already knew about. I did not really have time to have a good look around nor to ask questions but we have inside sources and we shall soon have the information we want. So we know David goes into the factory. We know he doesn't get most of his information from being in the factory. In fact, he says he, he had to be in there very quickly. He gets in, he gets out, um, but he gets most of his information from sources that he recruits. So he truly does become an industrial spy. The second part that he tells us in this letter is we, we would really have no way of knowing who David's sources were except he actually mentions one of them and it is truly a blockbuster. So David mentions that one of his sources is a gentleman named Mr. W. The 
former director on the mechanical side. If you remember at the earlier in the podcast, I mentioned a gentleman named Ambrose Webster, who is who invented all of Waltham's mechanized production. So it turns out that David is working with Ambrose Webster, who in Waltham history circles and in kind of pocket watch collector circles, Ambrose Webster is a highly regarded and respected individual. There is nobody who had any idea that Webster was working with the Swiss uh, until this letter is written and, you know, the research for my book came out. And it has truly changed, you know, kind of how we view where the Swiss get this information for David's report. And we truly do now see it as a product of industrial espionage. Um, and so they, you know, they couldn't get it at the Centennial. They had to get it from inside sources. They had to get it from the factory. Can you talk to us a little bit more about Ambrose Webster? And I suppose, do we have any insight on his motivations of why he helped the Swiss? Yeah, so we know we know Ambrose Webster, he had spent basically 20 years at the factory um, and he rose to be the number three person. So we have Royal Robbins as kind of the chief executive, mm -hmm. there's a superintendent, and then there's Ambrose Webster as the assistant superintendent. And uh, keep in mind that the, at the time, the factory is about a thousand people um, big and it has they're able to produce over 100,000 watches a year. They have truly revolutionized the watch industry uh, as they knew it at that time. Ambrose Webster retires from Waltham in June of 1876. So the Centennial Exhibition started in May. Uh, Webster retires in June. We don't really know if Webster starts talking to the Swiss before he retired or after he retired. Uh, we do know that he goes to the Centennial and visits um, at some point during the summer. And he it almost certainly links up with uh, Jacques David and Theo Gribby at the Centennial, although with the familiarity with which David refers to him as Mr. W, um, you know, we can presume that the people he's writing to in Switzerland are actually familiar with Webster's name by this point. So we we could surmise that perhaps Webster started working with the Swiss earlier than September. It may have even been, um, at, you know, as early as June, mm. but Webster retires and he, uh, ends up making some interesting financial choices that allow us to kind of triangulate what probably happened. So in David's letter, he says, you know, I can't recommend, Yet, whether you know one one company or our whole industry should approach Webster, but we really think he could be a great source uh, going forward as we as we transform our industry. So David's already kind of got a vision for where Webster fits into the picture. Webster um, ends up starting. He he joins another very small firm that had about six employees that made machinery in the fall of 1876. And Webster quickly grows this business. They announced uh, in November of that year, they announced plans to grow the factory to 80 workers and to begin production of watch machinery. Uh, this is the same month that David begins writing his report. So David returns to Switzerland in 1876. And in his report, he actually tells all the Swiss watchmakers that Webster is the best like his he doesn't mention webster's name but he says the american watch tool company which is webster's company uh is the best manufacturing uh the best manufacturer of watch tools out there 
At this time, there was no reason to believe this. The company was new. There was many other well-respected watch tool makers. There was no reason to recommend Webster's company, uh, except for the pure potential that Webster's company could have had, or the fact that there is this agreed upon arrangement. So while we don't have like, uh, you know, confirmed evidence of a quid pro quo arrangement, we can almost certainly presume that David uh, encourages Webster to start a company and Webster begins this company and he truly does benefit from it. He ends up, uh, there's an 1892 article where Webster uh, says that Webster's visited every factory uh, in Switzerland by this time. So Webster truly did benefit from this arrangement. Yeah, yeah, no, it's amazing. It's amazing. Now, um, going circling back to David, um, sorry, David, uh, his, he had this sort of famous factory visit that was very interesting, and some horologists have sort of not viewed it as an act of industrial espionage. And then earlier you, you described... Um, David is somebody who the Americans um, felt pity on, apparently, and I'm I, and I, I'm actually now when you mentioned that, I kind of assigned to picture this kind of Columbo-esque figure <laughs> in my mind. Of uh, I was, I'm intrigued about how David sort of carried himself as well. Um, so I don't know if you have any insight on how David sort of uh, portrayed himself outwardly, but uh, can you talk to us a bit about this sort of famous visit and any insights on 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 David himself, the way he kind of carried himself? Sure. So. Much of the history of David's visit has been informed by speculation. So uh, prior to David's letter coming to light where he admits going incognito, mm. we really had no way of knowing how David got the information. So I think there was a lot of assumptions made that, you know, what, uh, Waltham was known for giving tours. And in fact, um, that one of the judges, Edouard Favre Perret, um, Waltham likely gave him a tour uh, as a judge while he was in America. So we know mm. Waltham gave tours. So it was always assumed that David also got a tour um, in that that's where he got the information. It is possible that David takes a tour. If he does, he doesn't tell us. Is all we know is he tells us, you know, he snuck in and was incognito. But even if he did take a tour, um, the level of information he gets about Waltham uh, there would be no reason to share this on a tour. He, in fact, he uh, is able to take Waltham's finances and he takes their profit and loss statements, which were kept in ledgers at the company. And he is able to recite and say, hey, here's Waltham's finances. And he says, they're not 100%, but they're close enough that they will give you a good idea. When we compare those finances to Waltham's actual financial records, which are maintained in Harvard's archives, when you compare the two, David is off by about one to five percent uh, in his different line items. And I would challenge, you know, anybody listening to this podcast uh, that works at a company, if you know your company's finances at any given time to within one to five percent, uh, you're doing really well. Uh, and so to have an outsider like David, who's able to do it within one to five percent with accuracy, shows he has abnormal access to information. Did he get that on a tour? Almost certainly not. And in fact, I kind of compare this to like, if you were to go to the Coca-Cola factory now, um, you could take a tour of the factory, but that doesn't mean they're going to give you their proprietary uh, recipe for Coke. And so just to assume somebody takes a tour and they get all the information, um, mm. that's not, mm. you know, clearly probably not how it happens. And fortunately, David in his letter tells us that this isn't how it happens. So I surmise based on other um, research into industrial espionage and classic techniques that David, he does mention he uses a incognito disguise, 
uh, I surmise that he probably went in as a common worker uh, and had to speed quickly through uh, the factory, although he could have gone as you know other various methods to get into the factory incognito. Uh, but as all we know is he goes in, he's not in there very long. He has to speed through, get this information, but then relies primarily on workmen. And in his report, he says, you know, most of this information comes from the workers, uh, people that live in the town and people that are close to the factory. So David spends, we know, at least about two months in Waltham collecting this information. Yeah, yeah. And he kind of created a uh, a network of people who helped him sort of systematically put that information together, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And he's, you can tell, like in his report, he cites dividend schedules, which he says are not public. So presumably somebody gives them to him. He cites production schedules. He cites how Waltham, one of the most interesting thing is he says, workers don't, won't talk about their pay. Mm. And he says, uh, he basically says, workers don't talk about their pay and they appear to maintain this discretion. So he is indicating like, I didn't get this information from the workers. Mm. So then he goes on to cite almost precise wages that Waltham pays. And again, we can compare these to Waltham's um, pay pay logs in their in the archives at Harvard. And we find that David's estimates are actually off. He's he um, cites kind of the average pay if we create like a weighted average of the 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 wages mm. David cites. It comes out to about a dollar uh, and seventy seven cents which Waltham's actual average pay uh, during September 1876 was $1.78. So David's only off by you know a fraction of a penny uh, for most of these different wages that he cites. So we know that he, has, uh, he gets this information from somebody. Webster becomes a key source for some of this truly proprietary information that he's not able to get from employees themselves. Yeah. And only the way you sort of painted the picture of Waltham um, as an employer, it sounded like that they were um, an exceptional employer for their time who treated people well. And I was kind of, I'm interested and surprised that obviously employees would feel the need to uh, to potentially endanger that company by uh, giving away kind of uh, confidential information. Yeah. So there's actually a good piece um, from the uh, Canadian intelligence services from the, the 1990s in mm. which they basically say that the most common forms of industrial espionage um, often come from either people who are contractors uh, who formerly were at a company or employees themselves who kind of naively share information because they don't they don't realize what they're giving is kind of helping the spy create a overall picture. And so yeah. these employees are all giving little pieces probably most of them naively uh, or ignorantly um, sharing this information. Uh, but then we, we also know we do have a few people like Webster who saw that there was potential financial gain. Uh, one thing we do know from David's report is he mentions that he still has sources in the factory. And one of the reasons he dictates that the report must be kept secret is he says, if we let this get out, you know, not only could the Americans use it against us, but they'll also, you know, deal with these employees and, you know, they'll basically cut off these employees from speaking with us. And so David recognizes this as a threat. So we know that he is still communicating with them. And he also uh, kind of attaches as a amendum to his report 
a production schedule from the spring of 1877, so after he's returned to Switzerland. Um, so we know somebody's sending him, you know, production schedules about Waltham still well into the spring of 1877. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really interesting. And do you, and you were saying some of the employees might not have been aware that they were being used. So was David, do you think, like buying people drinks in the bar or something and just chatting with them? Sort of trying to talk shop with them. Yeah, from modern uh, research of industrial espionage, we find that you know a lot of times it's it's people, um, you know, kind of naively sharing. And in, in the modern era, we might attribute it to things like social media or to you know talking loudly in a restaurant. Um, those were you know things that we might say now, but you know back then we could obviously we don't have social media <laughs> back then, but we could think of similar things. You know, somebody naively. Um, sharing information at a bar or um david we know he you know he mentions talking to so many different employees he's able to get a little piece of information from this person that person um or you know we might even surmise that some of them thought hey this could be a financial opportunity i could go to switzerland uh, and work as a watchmaker um or help with the the transition to mechanized production by sharing the information. So there's many different reasons. We obviously don't know all of them, uh, but through modern research of industrial espionage, we can we can surmise how some of this information was acquired. Yeah, yeah, no, it's fascinating. Can you talk to us a little bit about that line between competitive research and industrial espionage? Because it sometimes does seem kind of a fine line. Yeah, so I think as a as a major point of context, it's first important to to specify that industrial espionage was not out of the it wasn't unusual for the day. Um, it was kind of viewed as anything you can acquire is is fair game. And in fact, one of the, some of the most famous targets of industrial espionage are porcelain and silk. But most interestingly, in uh, one of the biggest targets of industrial espionage in American history is the textile industry, which they stole. Francis Cabot Lowell stole this information from the English, uh, and he brought this back to America and created a whole new manufacturing system for textiles that became known as the Lowell Waltham system because Lowell actually set up his first factory in Waltham, Massachusetts, uh, the home of Waltham Watch Company. Um, this was well before Waltham Watch Company was around. And so uh, Lowell's factory grows and eventually moves over to its um, final home at Lowell, Massachusetts, um, where it became famous for the Lowell Mills. Uh, but those were all a product of espionage. So when we look at kind of industrial espionage in the era, if you were to go back to 1876 and talk to Jacques David and Theophilus Grivy, they wouldn't even know what the term you're talking about is. The term industrial espionage is kind of a modern term to describe what happened. So the term comes into usage around the start of World War I uh, and really doesn't come into mainstream usage in publications until about the 1960s. So this concept of industrial espionage is a relatively new concept uh, as far as how we think about it. And in fact, much of our views on industrial espionage now has been defined by the 1996 Industrial Espionage Act, which is uh, an American law that was created in 1996 that talks about you know, this, the true dangers of industrial espionage. So much of what we know of it now has is, is really kind of been defined through that lens. Um, but in my book, I try and stay away from legal definitions of industrial espionage and focus more on what scholars would call kind of the moral definitions or the moral descriptions. And so 
you know, every company now uses some form of competitive intelligence um, to assess competition in the market. And one of the scholars I cite, he talks about, you know, it really becomes this line of where once you're actually trying to get specific information about a competitor to where it involves sneaking into factories, stealing documents, those kind of like that's where the, the line bridges between what we would call competitive intelligence to industrial espionage. And many of the things that David describes in his report fit many of the kind of academic definitions almost to a T. Uh, and it's interesting because I, I actually quote some of those articles. And when you compare those to David, you can you can see like, wow, this is like truly, it kind of fits the narrative, it fits the the definitions without really having to delve into like, the legal definitions, because as I mentioned, this wouldn't have been illegal at the time. Mm. And ultimately, emulation, uh, which would come from espionage, does not necessarily guarantee success. So what else did the Swiss do that led to their kind of prominence over Waltham? I think one of the remarkable things about David's report, it's not so much that he got the information. You know, a lot of people get interesting information. Mm. The most curious thing about David's report is he actually knows what to do with it. And he not only describes the system, but then he describes a way forward for the Swiss. So kind of the first major thing he does is he doesn't say, hey, everybody, we got to go build giant factories. He knows it's never going to work. He, the Switzerland at the time was a poor country. They don't have the capital that mm. Waltham has. They don't have even the ability to raise capital like Waltham does. Um, and so David knows that's never going to work in Switzerland. And he also knows that most of the people that make watches there are farmers. They have no desire to go work in a factory. Hmm. So David proposes a system that is uses kind of the best of Waltham's machine-made manufacturing, but then kind of disaggregates it into little, you can almost think about them as little workshops. He encourages people, hey, don't work in your homes anymore. Come work in a little local workshop. Um, and you make, you know, these pieces or parts, the other person can make cases and everybody kind of like specializes in what their factory is going to make. So we begin having small factories um, that are, you know, not factories by the American sense of the word, but just small little factories in Switzerland. And they begin to spring up and they, the big thing David recommends is, hey, we, we need to standardize sizes. We can't all be making our own things. Even like yeah. he says, hey, screws, when you make screws, they all have to have the same angle of threading. Otherwise, we can't interchange parts. So he begins uh, proposing uh, methods of manufacturing. But then he also says, hey, we need to enforce how we are actually going to call watches that are Swiss made. He's like, if you're going to call something Swiss made, it has to have a, a level of exactness and performance and we'll give you a certificate. If your watch can show that it performs to the standard, we'll give you a certificate. And we see kind of the basis for the officially certified watch. So if you're listening to this, if you're wearing a Rolex watch, you'll look down on the face, you'll see it still says officially certified. This is the kind of the basis for that system. And then mm -hmm. David also promotes hallmarks on watches for gold and silver. If you're wearing a watch that is a gold watch or even a stainless steel watch, or platinum watch, you'll notice it still has the hallmarks for those on the watch. Um, and it became this preventative against cheating. So it became this kind of market collective uh, began to support the systems of officially certified and hallmarking to know that watches were reliable. But probably the biggest strategic thing coming out of the Centennial 
is the Swiss realize like they're never going to win the cheap and reliable market. Waltham completely owns that. They have, you know, millions of dollars in capital and they are able to produce hundreds of thousands of watches a year. The Swiss know that they're not going to catch up. So they make this strategic choice on focusing on the luxury market. They say, hey, we have this army of horologists. Let's focus on making nice watches and let's just leave the American market alone. Mm. We're not going to, we, we'll still sell nice watches in America, but when it comes to cheap and reliable watches, we'll just let the Americans have it. And so by that, uh, just to give you kind of context mm. in 18, in the 1870s, America accounts for about 25% of Swiss watch sales. By the 1890s, it's less than 2% of American watch sales. So the Swiss truly kind of ignore the American market and focus elsewhere. But then they start focusing on the luxury market. And it's kind of a, 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 a um, you know, a interesting time that they choose to do this because coming out of the centennial, the story is cheap and reliable watches are going to own the market. Mm. But the Swiss then realize that there's this opportunity and right as the centennial closes, um, we start to see the rise of the Gilded Age and the robber barons. And people want to spend enormous sums of money on things that other people can't have. And in fact, the term conspicuous consumption is actually termed in 1899, uh, right as this period's kind of happening. And it's the idea of like wanting to own what others can't afford. And so the Swiss watch quickly becomes known for the you know this horological art that is now machine made and accurate and reliable and americans now want to own a swiss watch so coming out of the centennial in 1876 there's newspaper articles that says you know nobody in america would be caught wearing a swiss watch you you wouldn't want to own anything but an american watch by 1892 there's a really cool article i came across in my research it's basically the almost the entire page 2 of the brooklyn daily eagle so the brooklyn um, New York newspaper, it would have been kind of a who's who of Brooklyn. And in there, they list hundreds of people and the prominent people, whether they be senators or reverends or professors, and what watches they own. They're overwhelmingly expensive Swiss watches. And so we see that over this period of time, the Swiss have gone from making watches that were known as kind of the worst trash that nobody wanted to own to now that they are known as like the makers of horological art that if you truly want to like be uh, the watch that others aspire to own it must be a swiss watch and we can see that in the change of the way the swiss market their watches all of this comes out of the centennial exhibition with jacques david and the recommendations of his report yeah yeah indeed what was the ultimate sort of fate of waltham after all this yeah so waltham ends up um they realize they can't they, they start to realize by the 1880s, the mid 1880s, that that things are not working out the way they had planned. Mm. They came out of the centennial. They were famous. They had won all these awards, but they see the market start to transform before them. First of all, they have uh, seemingly unlimited competition at home in the cheap and reliable market. So they realize that the only way to stay profitable there is they must continue to make them cheaper, more reliable. They continue to invest in heavy mass production um, and then this really burdens them because as the market starts to evolve towards luxury watches, and then the Swiss also introduced the wristwatch uh, as kind of a prominent um, watch uh, model, Waltham can't transform. They are so burdened by this heavy capital of mass production that they continue to focus on the cheap and reliable market. 
uh, until they basically can no longer remain profitable. And they uh, continue to do this until 1921 when they um, end up having to restructure. Uh, and then they continue on through the end of World War II when they finally declare bankruptcy and more or less go out of business. They do a, a series of restructurings, go out of business. Mm. Then the Waltham name survives, but not the company kind of as we knew it back then. So Waltham's strategy, they, they quickly find out that the strategy of mass production uh, was good. But then as the market evolved, they were so burdened by uh, heavy equipment that they could no longer react to their Swiss competitors. And the, they realized that the Swiss strategy of kind of focusing on luxury production is truly where the money is. And in, 18, in the 1890s, we even find Royal Robbins in one of his letters says, you know, we would love to sell luxury watches. Uh, but the problem is, is nobody wants to buy them from us. And so, you know, when we make them, they just sit on our hands and, and we can't we can't sell them. Uh, and so Waltham finds that this strategy uh, does not work, but they can't transition to the wristwatch. It takes really until after World War One before Waltham truly embraces the wristwatch uh, in, in, you know, mass production quantities. Uh, but by this time, the Swiss already own that market. Yeah. yeah. And just um, I'm just thinking about sort of uh, in in sort of military and espionage circles, the brands that stand out as watches that we talk about today are all Swiss brands. It's sort of Rolex, Omega, Bretling, um, and and it's it's just so interesting how you know today it's all just Swiss watches. It's fascinating, and uh, yeah, I mean, what is the situation between American and and uh, Swiss watch manufacturers today? Yeah, so as I mentioned, kind of the World War II era, we can call it kind of World War One, World War Two. There's a lot of government funding that enters the market, and it really kind of complicates the history as we know it between the Swiss and American watch industries. But you know, coming out of there, the Swiss are clearly, uh, really by 1900, the Swiss are clearly the reputational owners mm -hmm. of uh, the world's best watchmakers, and they maintain that you know until really until modern day. There's been uh, various chapters from the invention of the quartz watch and whatnot that provided some speed bumps along the way. But the Swiss have truly earned this reputation for being the world's best watchmakers. And now many of their watches you can't even buy, even if you wanted to, you know, there's many models of a Rolex that if you wanted to buy one, you, you, you'd be hard pressed to go find one at a store. Um, so many of those things have, have completely changed them, especially when we look at the American watch industry, as I mentioned, Waltham uh, ceased to exist. Their factory is now luxury apartments. It's still there. You can go visit it uh, in Waltham, Massachusetts, but it's now luxury apartments. Uh, many of the other brands that of America, the American watch industry that survived were eventually bought by Swiss companies. Um, and uh, Hamilton being a good example was one of Waltham's competitors. Uh, it is now owned by a Swiss uh, company. And the American watch industry now just survives mostly in boutique production. Probably the most prominent example uh, who has done extremely well is the Vortic watch company who takes old uh, American watch movements, either Waltham or Elgin or Hamilton, among many others, and actually puts them in wristwatch cases. And you can buy those now and they're amazing. They do amazing work and, and beautiful works of art. Um, but that's probably the most prominent example of the American watch industry. There's a couple boutique producers such as RGM, which is a watchmaker out of Pennsylvania uh, who still makes watches um, by, I say by hand, but, you know, machinery and by hand. Um, but other than that, the, there's no prominent American watch companies that are dominating like the Swiss are. 
Yeah, and what do you think with with now smartwatches and stuff becoming? I mean, I now own a Apple Watch. I've had it for about two years now, and it's become. At first, I was very anti them, um, but over time, just with fitness tracking stuff, it's like, ah, oh, I really kind of need one or want yeah. one, and now it sort of dominates my watch choice because uh, if I don't put it on, I can't track what I'm up to. <laughs> so, so my other watch is now all in a in a little uh, box, just sitting in the in in uh, gathering dust now. <laughs> yeah, I think one thing that you know, looking back and having looked at the history of the Swiss watch industry, is the the Swiss watch industry is is truly they make excellent strategic choices. And I mm. remember when the smartwatch came out, everybody thought that it would be the death of the Swiss watch. And since, you know, you know, roughly 2015, when smartwatches truly, you know, became mainstream till now, the Swiss watch has even grown in prominence in the, um, you know, back in 2015, you could buy a Rolex, you could buy a Patek Philippe. Now you would be hard pressed to buy any of those in a store. Uh, and, you know, oftentimes when you, if you are able to buy a Rolex, it's immediately worth you know, twice as much or more uh, the moment you walk out of the store. So the Swiss have continued to manage to transform the perception of the Swiss watch, not just from a tool that tells the time, but truly as a, mm-hmm. a symbol of status and a, a carrier of the owner's identity, which is interesting because that was exactly kind of what we saw in the transformation of the watch uh, during the American Civil War. It was a tool uh, but we also find that soldiers found those watches as carriers of their identity. And we find that that's still true now with many watch owners. They view it as kind of a symbol and, and shower of their identity and, and who they are. And just the, the mechanism inside is something that they're amazed with. And we knew we know that was true back in the 1800s, too. So it's truly a transformation of the Swiss watch industry, even in the era of the smartwatch. Yeah, and and obviously we know smartwatches from a, a personal security point of view are a liability, especially if you are in the military. Um, sure. There's been countless uh, stories recently of uh, either special forces or even I think it was a Russian submarine commander who was mm-hmm. um, assassinated based on his sort of jogging habits using I think Strava, which was connected to his smartwatch. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, from a military point of view, I think normal watches still have a long way to go. But, uh, but there we go. Well, look, um, Aaron, thank you so much for your time today. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we sort of wrap up? Uh, the only thing I'd like to say is, you know, if you enjoyed mm-hmm. kind of what we talked about, definitely encourage you to check out the book "Disrupting Time: Industrial Combat, Espionage, and the Downfall of a Great American Company." You can find it on Audible. Uh, you can also find it on Amazon and paperback and hardcover. I will put a, a special plug-in for the Audible version. It is read by a multiple award-winning Will Dameron, who does an outstanding job and uh, just truly reads it in a captivating way. Definitely recommend the Audible version. But if you're more of a hard copy uh, type person, please check it out on Amazon. You can also check out my website, AaronStarkBooks.com, for some of the photos and documents that we've talked about today many of those are featured on there and you can also uh, find where to purchase the book there as well so aaron thank you very much for joining me today it was a really interesting chat and yes i highly recommend to everybody to get a copy of disrupting time it really was truly fascinating and it's changed my perception on on watches and timekeeping so no thank you aaron for joining me today yeah thanks for having me appreciate it
Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.